Dan Curry is a filmmaker, artist, and visual effects producer with an incredible legacy. His work on Star Trek garnered seven Emmy Awards and 15 nominations. He has served as a visual effects department head at Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers, and 20th Century Fox, and as a governor of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, among other important roles. Though best known for his visual effects work on Star Trek, he used his expertise in martial arts to develop the iconic Batleth, Mechleth, and other weapons used by Klingon warriors. Aside from Star Trek, Dan's critically acclaimed art has been showcased in over a hundred feature films worldwide. I interviewed Dan while gathering content for the second season of the podcast. His work on Star Trek and beyond highlights the profound relationship between science fiction and science fact, a conversation that has long propelled technology into the future. We also talked about his work with NASA and the Overview Institute, which seeks to educate the public on the sublime, edifying nature of crude exploration beyond Earth. I'm Danny Baird. This is The Invisible Network. Good morning, Dan. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Um, so you began work on Star Trek at a time when many of the digital effect, visual effects tools that are a hallmark of contemporary science fiction had not yet been invented. Uh, can you share what that experience was like? How does that affect your outlook on the medium today? Well, um, when I started, computers had, were just becoming to become part of of the film industry. But in those days, they were used primarily for motion control rigs. And the apocryphal story goes that uh, Douglas Trumbull, uh, best known for his work on uh, 2001 and uh, uh, other great films as both a uh, visual effects artist and a uh, director, um, was visiting a, an aerospace plant and saw this giant milling machine uh, uh, doing the same move over and over again. And Doug realized that that would be the solution to an age-old problem where we couldn't build miniature spaceships uh, with lights bright enough inside to, to be able to see the lights while we're lighting the hull. So uh, motion control changed everything, and that's what led to Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, which uh, also Doug supervised. And, uh, and so that was the state of technology when we started, where matte paintings, which are... Uh, changing an area of the frame by putting in another image to the classic is seeing riders in the foreground riding up to a castle in the distance and the castle is actually a painting and in those days uh, matte paintings are done in oils on either glass or masonite and uh, it was well before photoshop and uh, uh, we had to use physical objects to create different phenomenon uh, for example uh, if you wanted a uh, a nebula, we would use uh, liquid nitrogen uh, lit in a certain way, as opposed to uh, generating it with the computer algorithm. So uh, I kind of call the evolution from what we had then to what we have now, where everything is created in a computer and anything you can imagine can be convincingly portrayed on screen. It's alchemy to algorithms. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but when developing these visual effects, what sort of efforts do you take to root your imagery in hard science? And what sort of research do you do to prepare? 
Well, uh, NASA was always very kind to us by uh, uh, providing images of uh, space, uh, especially when Hubble's telescope came along. And so looking at those things, we would do our best to emulate them with the resources available to us uh, at the time. And there's always been a, a symbiotic relationship between science fiction and real science. And that goes back to the earliest days of filmmaking when George Melier did his late 1800s uh, epic uh, voyage to the moon they didn't realize that the moon had no atmosphere. So uh, guys just went in top hats and uh, frock coats and were walking around on the surface of the moon. And as science evolved and we realized, oh, there's no atmosphere, then science fiction would change. And when science, so a scientific discovery in real science would inspire a dreamer to say, oh, now that we know that, what if this? And that's pretty much what, what we were doing on Star Trek. And uh, then when a dreamer would have an idea, uh, then they would inspire a real scientist. Well, maybe that can happen, let's do that. So take for example, the iPad uh, on, on the next generation, we had pads, which in our case, they were props with uh, a little piece of blue screen on them. And then we would composite the image on the blue screen because they nothing like that existed, but that inspired the people at Apple to, well, let's make a real one. And what was interesting is the real iPads, their capabilities are so far beyond what we would imagine uh, would be possible in the 24th century that then that inspired other stuff. And, or uh, even in the original Star Trek series at the flip, their communicators were flip phones. So, uh, and science fiction goes back to the earliest days of literature. When you think about one of the oldest pieces of European literature, Beowulf, that's really a science fiction story. Or even the great Roman author Apuleius wrote stories about people being uh, transformed into animals and how they would get back, which classifies as science fiction. Or during the Tokugawa period, uh, the Japanese invented no theater, N-O-H theater, and they were frequently science fiction stories about strange forces coming from outer space, turning people into mushrooms. And so uh, it's, it's part of the, the uh, I think, the human desire to be told stories that are based on speculating about the possible. And I think those speculations grow and evolve as real science discovers more things to inspire the dreamers to think about new stuff. Taking a sort of a sidestep, you've designed a lot of combat weapons for uh, specifically the Klingons. When designing those weapons and fighting styles, you seem to pull from a lot of various cultures on Earth. What does that process look like? How do you do that research? Um, when I was a boy, uh, my mother uh, gave me a book called Weapons by Edwin Tunis, and Weapons was a history of uh, weapons from the Stone Age to the atom bomb. And Edwin Tunis was a wonderful illustrator, and there's beautiful pen and ink drawings of the different weapons, which I emulated as a child. And so that started me thinking about weapons ergonomics. And one of the things, even as a child going to the movies that always annoyed me, is when I'd see a bogus weapon that was designed to look cool, but was ergonomically worthless. 
And so I always was uh, opposed to design for design's sake. Uh, they had to be real. And uh, after graduating from college, I wanted to serve and I joined the Peace Corps and uh, was assigned to build small dams in villages, uh, in remote villages uh, in tributaries of the Mekong River. And each village had an ancient tradition of its own kind of secretive martial arts. And they, I was amazed to watch these people go through their routines and the villagers with their great wisdom and kindness were uh, generous enough to offer the clumsy barbarian uh, uh, share some of their knowledge of martial arts. And it really got me interested in it. And then when I was in town, uh, the only movies available were uh, Thai soap operas, Indian musicals, or Chinese sword flicks. So obviously um, I got into Chinese sword flicks and uh, the great films by Shaw Brothers. And seeing what the characters could do both fanciful and in reality uh, got me interested and I pursued more and more studies of martial arts with different masters. Like I had a, a master in Laos who was a, a, a only taught dagger style. And we used to go to the market and slice up sides of beef uh, to get the feel of how a, a blade moves through meat. And uh, then I had uh, a Tai Chi master in, uh, in Bangkok. And then I got to study Taekwondo with uh, Kim Myung Soo, who was considered number five in Korea at the time. So, uh, all I, at the time, I wouldn't have realized it, but it all became part of Star Trek years later. Beyond the fighting styles, it seems you've also pulled a lot of architectural elements from uh, Asia into your designs. Uh, can you talk about that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, for example, if you look at, at Klingon exteriors, a lot of those are kind of a mixture of Thai, Lao, and Nepali architecture. And uh, a lot of those were uh, done by my friend, uh, one of the great artists in America, Sid Dutton, who did a lot of those matte paintings for us in oils. It's interesting. Do you, uh, when you design now, do you still take a look at uh, other cultures, maybe even outside of Asia? Uh, yeah, always. Uh, and I use kind of what I call the Darwinian approach. Uh, there's a famous uh, event, which may or may not be true, where Charles Darwin was visiting an island in the South Pacific and he saw a specific type of flower that had a unique proportion. So Darwin guessed that there would be a bird that would be able to feed on that nectar. So he did a sketch of a bird and three days later they found the bird that looked very much like Darwin's sketch. So when I'm designing creatures for Star Trek or, or weapons, I, it's a form follows function. Uh, so for example, we had a, a creature on Star Trek Voyager that lived in caves and slithered around through passages. So I imagined what would a creature like that eat? How would it be mobile? And then I figured, okay, like a blowfish, it could have an expandable bladder so it could stabilize itself in a vertical shaft, but it could also shrink itself so it could slither through a tight passageway. And uh, so the, that Darwinian approach of, you know, what world does it live in? Um, what does it need to survive? How does it move? Uh, what's its energy source? And those factors uh, lead me to... Um, design stuff. And I love doing that even as a boy. I have reams and reams of drawings my mother saved from my childhood of weird creatures. 
Um, so in the past, you've worked with NASA to show the public the influence of science fiction on science fact. Uh, in your estimation, what is that relationship? Uh, I would say uh, on, on my side, it's kind of being a NASA geek. Uh, you know, I have the, the greatest respect for what NASA is doing and the brilliance of their scientific mind. So any, any opportunity to spend time with uh, the great scientists from NASA is uh, you know, totally a, a geeked out land for me. And uh, a lot of the NASA scientists uh, seem to have been influenced by Star Trek at one point or along. And a lot of them think that that may have been an inspiration to pursue real science. So just like the relationship between science fiction and real science, it's uh, at least on my end, it's uh, a uh, kind of a, hero worship of what, what NASA accomplishes. I, I think it's an understatement to say that NASA employees have been in, inspired by Star Trek. Um, but what lessons do you think that scientists and engineers from NASA should take from science fiction? What are the most important uh, stories you think? To me, the most important thing scientists can get from science fiction is, is inspiration, uh, a dream, a what if. And a lot of times, uh, uh, scientists uh, are so focused on fact and reality and exploring uh, things based on real knowledge that it can be useful to them to have somebody dream way far away or way out of the box and say, wow, that's an interesting idea. What if? And then they might pursue uh, a line of uh, research uh, based on, the, on that dreamer's dream, uh, like Arthur C. Clarke imagined uh, orbiting uh, communication satellites. That's just like our uh, teacher's constellation. Um, so as NASA journeys to the moon and Mars, how do you think science fiction will change as those dreams of yesterday sort of become the realities of now? Well, it will change the, the basis uh, that all science fiction has to be successful in reality. So as we learn new things, um, science fiction must change just like uh, when we learned there was no atmosphere on the moon, uh, then science fiction realized we need spacesuits. And uh, so I, I think it will change, issues will change, especially um, the overview effect has changed how people understand the planet, unless you're a flat earther. Um, and I can remember seeing that first photograph of the earth taking, taken by the Apollo 11 astronauts um, and you see the lunar landscape in the foreground and you see earth floating in space and only the most perceptually challenged individuals would not uh, conclude that we have a very special jewel in space, maybe the only place where life can exist as we could know it. And I think, uh, that inspiration changed how we depict planets. If you look at um, early science fiction films like the great George Powell films, you could tell um, you know, Earth was a painting and it didn't look very realistic. And, um, and then the great work of the artist Chesley Bonestell should not be underestimated. He was a, a science fiction uh, illustrator and his work influenced uh, uh, a lot of people uh, and his attempts to make things look as real, I think, opened the door 
uh, for regular citizens to realize uh, we do have access to space and it can be real and this stuff looks like we can readily accomplish it. So you mentioned the overview effect. What, what in your estimation is that effect? Um, yeah, I was brought into that by one of the leaders, David Beaver, and uh, also um, the author, Kevin Kelly, who wrote uh, The Home Planet. Uh, and we've remained friends. And the overview effect is the internal perceptual change someone might have uh, as a result of seeing Earth from space. Because you realize there are no borders. All the borders are the result of human imagination and they kind of drift from eon to eon as power shifts among different populations. And just the idea that uh, we live in a very small space and Earth is a spaceship. And so the overview effect is, is how internally you change and whether you're a Russian cosmonaut or uh, an astronaut from another country or an American astronaut, I think they all go through that. And I know I would, uh, looking at how just seeing a photograph of Earth from space has changed my feeling about our place in the universe. It must be exponentially greater from somebody really experiencing it firsthand. And in your work with the Overview Institute, you try and share this effect with the public. What, what do you think is the importance of the general public sort of having an understanding of this effect? Well, I think the importance is that philosophically, the average person should understand how, how precious and unique our planet is. And also, perceive the fiction in a lot of what we believe about uh, international relationships and and what what's the earth is really about. Uh, I remember seeing at NASA headquarters a projection of a planet uh, in kind of a an amphitheater like uh, theater where we would see projections on this spherical screen and that we could see uh, phytoplankton blooms in different periods and how uh, temperature change. And it was uh, eye-opening uh, that we could know that much about our planet. And I think the more we know about the world we live on, the, and the, the, the true independence of, of all people on earth, the greater our chances for prosperity and international peace. And as a visual storyteller, how do you imbue a sense of this overview effect into your work? Well, the same thing like on, uh, on Star Trek, I remember we did an episode uh, where we go to a planet that had been colonized a long time ago and people basically had a, a technology level uh, like the old west. And I remember doing a matte painting of a Western town in the desert and, and there's a scene uh, that was written where they brought one of the residents of that planet uh, onto the ship and they could see the planet from space for their first time. And that was a depiction of the overview effect because mm -hmm. the person suddenly had a sea change in how they understood their culture, their place in the universe and, uh, and her individual self. Wow. Uh, so all this has been so wonderful. Um, 
I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me. If listeners are curious about your work, though, where can they learn more? Um, coming up uh, September 2020, uh, I have a book coming out, uh, co-written with Ben Robinson in London, uh, commissioned by CBS, and it's about um, my work on Star Trek, and I've tried to keep it uh, from an individual perspective rather than presumptuously speaking for all my colleagues that worked on the visual effects team. I felt it was unfair to them. And, uh, and it's a celebration of all the really incredibly talented and dedicated people I worked with, the army of people that were required to produce the visual effects for Star Trek, and also focusing on the, the evolution of technology that's going back to uh, alchemy to algorithms and how uh, we would do these really weird out-of-the-box ways to accomplish things and how that changed as computing power and computing technology got got better and better. Uh, one time I had to do a shot where uh, an invisible spacecraft enters. Uh, Geordi wants to reveal where it is, but they can't see it because it's got a cloaking device that makes it invisible. So he figures out by luring it in, into a planet atmosphere, it will, the heat signature will expose where it is. And how I did that was I made a model covered in black velvet and glued slivers of shopping bag onto it and uh, uh, shot that with the uh, uh, shutter open for three seconds a frame on our motion control system. So the flapping plastic just looked like uh, hot gases because of motion blur. And then I shot some old newspapers at a barbecue with the camera turned sideways and keyed the newspapers uh, fire through the uh, flapping plastic. But when you see it on screen, it looks like re-entry heat for, from a spacecraft. That's amazing. And all that would be done digitally now. So it's uh, yeah, so and, and much better than we could have done. <laughs> oh, I'm and, not sure about that. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure in 50 years, people will look back on what we're doing now as, as, as quaint as uh, what, uh, George Bellier was doing in 1885. They'll be shooting at live re-entries. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, th thank you so much. And uh, uh, it's been a privilege. Anything, uh, as I said, I'm a huge NASA fan. So anything I can do that uh, supports any activity of NASA, I'm there. This season of The Invisible Network debuted in November of 2019. The podcast is produced by the Space Communications and Navigation Program, or SCAN, out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Episodes were written and recorded by me, Danny Baird, with editorial support from Matthew Peters. Our public affairs officers are Peter Jacobs of Goddard's Office of Communications, Claire Skelly of the Space Technology Mission Directorate, and Catherine Hamilton of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Special thanks to Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, Rob Garner, Goddard Web Team Lead, Amber Jacobson, Communications Lead for SCAN at Goddard, and all those who have lent their time, talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of the episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, 
visit nasa.gov scan. 